don't judge. The Bible says, don't judge. That is the most common verse from the Bible that is ever quoted to me that is not in fact actually in the Bible. It is quoted so often that people just assume that it must be there. Certainly the Bible says, don't judge. The Bible says, never judge. I don't know which is quoted more often to me, whether it is the golden rule or this non-existent verse. Perhaps the next most common non-existent verse in the Bible is, God helps those who help themselves. I can't tell you the amount of times that that has been quoted to me, that that has been stated to me as I'm standing before someone. They could be standing there in a drunken stupor, walking out of a, a worldly club of some kind. I hand the person a track and begin to engage with them on something spiritual. The Bible says, don't judge. How dare you judge me? And the irony in the whole conversation is the reality that the person has made a judgment themselves. They have made a judgment that my judgment is wrong, is actually violating the scriptures. So not only are you quoting a verse to me from the Bible that's not actually in the Bible, you're contradicting yourself and what you're saying that I shouldn't do because you're doing the very same thing yourself. You know, oftentimes I'll just look at the person that says that to me and I'll say, are you judging me? And the person will step back for a second and I'm, I'm being discerning. I'm just discerning what you're doing. You're judging me and I'm discerning that. I think you're using the word in a very similar way way. This passage is not a passage that teaches us that all judgment is wrong. Otherwise, you would never be able to say anything about anything at all. You wouldn't even be able to call someone out for violating the passage on judging someone. You would just have to keep your mouth shut. Now, I won't go into it, but there are some aspects of Hinduism and Hinduist, Hinduist philosophy that actually goes down this trajectory. It actually says you can't ever tell anyone that anything that they're doing is wrong, but I'm not going to go down that pathway right now. My desire for us is that we would understand this passage in its context. We would understand the passage just as we have sought to do with the previous passages, just as we've sought to first and foremost understand these passages in their isolated context where they are here, and then, of course, understand them in the scriptures as a whole because the scriptures don't contradict themselves. So just as the other parts of the Sermon on the Mount, we're not going to interpret them in a way that's going to contradict other parts of scripture, the same thing here. We're not going to come up with an isolated passage and interpret it in a way that contradicts other clear portions of Scripture. So first I want to talk about the heart from which we should judge. I think that's where Christ begins here. Verses 37 and 38 of Luke chapter 6. 
It says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, you will be forgiven. Give, it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, will it be measured back to you. Now, in a very important theological principle that we need to take into account whenever we're interpreting a scripture, and most especially when we're interpreting a scripture that may have some difficulty, that when you first read it, you are understanding it in a way that contradicts something else, contradicts something nearby, or contradicts a theme in the scriptures as a whole, and that is the analogy of faith. This is the understanding that we need to understand the doctrines that we have in a way that takes into account the totality of what the Christian religion teaches, the totality of what the scriptures are teaching us. We cannot look at a passage and say, well, I'm just going to interpret the Bible literally. I'm just going to take it at its face value. I'm just going to take it for what it says right here and go no further. That is not what the authors intended you to do. Jesus is not coming forward and speaking as though no one had ever spoken previously. In fact, if you want to understand the Godhead properly, if you want to understand who Jesus is as fully God and fully man, Jesus has been speaking prior to this. There's a very erroneous hermeneutic that is being pushed around right now, and this is the so-called Jesus-centric hermeneutic, that we need to really focus on the words of Jesus, and the words of Jesus are where we really get the meat and where we really get good doctrine. However, the other words, we, we may have to um, separate them out. We may have to stratify them based upon their importance or legitimacy or, let's be honest, based upon what we favor the most, what we like the most. That's what we're going to do. If I have any opportunity to decide this is the Bible, this is not the Bible, of that which is actually Scripture, I'm most naturally going to begin to pick the things that I appreciate more and emphasize those, and the things that I don't like as much, I will emphasize those less. This very much ties into the passage that we're talking about here, because Jesus is going to talk about judgment and proper judgment in the heart from which that judgment comes. And if it's up to me just to pick which Bible verses I get to emphasize and which Bible verses I don't have to emphasize, if it's just a matter of my opinion, then I'm not going to be judging rightly. I'm not going to be making judgments that are consistent or are equitable or are fair or are correct. No, I'm going to be judging in a way that is biased towards my preferences. We must understand this, that there's no such thing as a Jesus-centric hermeneutic. There's no such thing as a so-called red-letter Bible. I understand people print those. But the words of Jesus in the red letters that Jesus spoke as a man are not more important than the other words that Jesus spoke through the prophets. Remember, Scripture is God-breathed. Holy men, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote the scriptures. And so that which men wrote is inspired by God. We must not look at it through different lenses of importance. We must look at it and understand it in the way in which it is communicated hermeneutically, where it sits in that context and where it sits in redemptive history as a whole. 
So there's judgments in the Bible. There's many judgments that are made. Jesus here clearly isn't saying that you can't ever make a judgment. Jesus is going to call Herod a fox. Jesus calls the scribes and the Pharisees many names. He's very critical of them. He's very harsh upon them. One of the reasons why he is so harsh upon them is because their judgment was so hypocritical. They had two different standards. They had a standard for themselves and people like them and a standard for other people. They looked at the scriptures and emphasized certain things over others. And then what's worse is that they created their own level of standards. They looked at God's law God's law wasn't serious enough, so they had to really step it up. They really had to emphasize what it meant to follow the Sabbath day. And so now you can't even pick up your mat after you've been healed. You can't even heal someone on the Sabbath. That's how blind they were. That's how incredible these men were in their judgment, in their hypocritical judgment. So Jesus calls them, the scribes and the Pharisees calls them hypocrites, calls them sons of perdition, calls them blind guides, thieves, whitewashed tombs, calls them snakes. Not recommending that you use these terms to just call out to people on a regular basis, but Jesus was making judgments about what they believed. Jesus was making judgments about what they taught. Jesus was making judgments about their character, and he was right in doing that. He was right in doing so. He wasn't contradicting what he's teaching here. Now, some may say to me, yes, Jesus did make those judgments, but only God can judge. And Jesus was God, and that's why Jesus can make these kinds of judgments. And it is true, Jesus is God. He's fully God. He's fully man. It is true, Jesus has certain insight that you and I don't have. Jesus could see even what was in the hearts of men. But we need to be cautious when we go and make statements like, only God can judge me. I have been shocked at the amount of times that that phrase has been used, that the way in which people will just commonly throw that out, only God can judge me. Someone will be unrepentant. Someone will be unholy. Someone will be not worshiping God rightly. Someone will be having no care for that which is godly, that which is spiritual, that which is holy, that which is good. And they will take comfort in this. Hand someone a track. I could well do this Friday. I will hand someone a track. <coughs> it's not uncommon for someone to say, only God can judge me. It's true in a complete sense, only God can judge you. Only God can fully judge your heart. Only God can look at your motives and fully understand why it is that you're doing what you're doing. Only God can fully judge the heart. Only God knows the heart. And that's true. That should not be comforting to you. That should not be something that you're saying, only God knows my heart. Don't, don't believe the lie. That people will say, well, you know what, I understand this man is a drunkard, this man is, is an adulterer, this man is a thief, this man is an abuser. Fill in the blank of whatever sin it might be for that particular person. Oh, but he has a good heart. Oh, oh but he means well. I really know this person. He means well. No. Absolutely not. Dear friends, 
It is the best foot that you're putting forward outwardly. We are limited in our actions by our own inhibitions. One of the things that happens when God hardens someone's heart is that the natural inhibitions that are there, that which would bring someone shame, that which would give someone pause in walking forward headlong in their rebellion and sin, that is, that is halted. Those things begin to stop, and they walk down a path that is insane, that is destructive, that is a downward spiral. You saw that with Pharaoh. We've talked about that. It was insane what he did. He had lost so much, so much wealth, so much power, and he followed his lust all the way into the middle of a sea that was split open. His heart was hardened. His heart was coming out. That, that, that's the depth of hatred that he had for the people of God. That's the enmity that he had with God. But you've got to understand this, that evil is flowing forth into the actions of man from the heart of man. And what is shown outwardly on a man, on a woman, is a fraction of what is within his heart. Murders that have occurred have occurred thousands of times over in someone's heart prior to the time when they happen. Someone who is committing adultery has done that many times over in their heart prior to it actually flowing out through their actions. So don't tell yourself, only God knows my heart. Don't tell yourself, only God can fully judge me. What's in your heart is much worse than what is coming out through your actions. And God will judge not merely your actions, but he will also judge the heart from which they come forward. No, dear friends, Jesus is teaching here the heart from which you should judge. And it should be one that is in righteousness. John 7, 24, we see that idea. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Understand things rightly, not from a worldly way, but from a godly way. And this passage is not forbidding the judging of the character of others. Why would Paul write what he writes in 1 Corinthians 5 and verses 12 and 13? He says, for what do I have with judging outsiders? <coughs> is it not those who are in the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside purge the evil person from among you. I think we do well to heed this statement sometimes. I think there is much that needs to be said about the culture at large and about the things that are going on, but the truth is when you look at much that the apostles were dealing with, they were dealing with the church, they were dealing with evangelism. 1 John 4 and uh, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world again. There is a judgment that is here. Judgment is necessary in church discipline, Matthew 18, 17 and 18. It says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let it be to you. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's a judgment that's being made there. And on a side note, just to make a reference here that I think needs to be referenced and understood, this whole binding and loosing thing, this is a passage talking about church discipline. 
Okay, this is not someone just randomly declaring that they're binding demons in the air or binding this person in government or whatever. This is Jesus here, and he's talking about the work of the church in church discipline. Again, two or three are gathered, the same thing. That's another misused passage many times. Where, oh, well, there's two or three of us are gathered here on the baseball field. That's not what that passage is talking about. That's a passage that is talking about church discipline. Let's not just yank things completely out of their context. 1 Corinthians 5, once again, Paul says this, is actually reported among you, there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated among the pagans for a man has his father's wife. It's a very serious sin. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Again, there's judgment here in this passage. He's commanding them to practice judgment. You are going to practice judgment in your life. The question is, are you practicing judgment in a way that is righteous? Philip Graham Ryken makes this point. He says, when Jesus said this, he did not mean that we're never called to render judgment. There are many life situations that demand a decision. Parents are called to make judgments when their children have a conflict. Teachers assess their students. Managers evaluate their employees. Elders decide cases of discipline in the church. And judges render verdicts in courts of law. The rest of the Bible makes it clear that judge not is not a prohibition against any and every form of judgment. Whenever we are called to make moral or theological decisions, it is irresponsible for us not to judge. And we see this emphasis here at the end portion of this beginning portion of the passage, which is emphasizing the heart from which you are to judge. It says, give and it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Now, this is an illustration that would be very familiar to the people of the first century. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> <clears throat> it had to do with someone who was to be fair with someone else when they were buying something from them, most especially buying something like grain. I mean, there's a lot of ways that you could just kind of sloppily pack something together and do it in such a way that, you know, you're cheating the other person. Now, how many of you have noticed this in this country? where during times of inflation, right, the value of your money is decreasing, you'll, you'll grab the package and it looks like it's the same size. It doesn't have the same amount in that package. Or things that used to be, I don't know, maybe, maybe one ounce, now suddenly it's, <coughs> it's seven-eighths of an ounce or, or it's some other odd amount that you're just like, I've got a different amount in here. Now, they're telling you the amount that you're being sold. They're not lying to you. But it's a little bit deceptive because it looks the same as it did before, and you don't notice it until maybe you get home or you open up the package and you realize, I should have bought two of these. I don't have enough for the family now to feed them. But there's a commentator, a historian from um, the first century named J um, 
J. Jeremiah. So if you ever do any New Testament history study, you're going to run across this historian named Jeremiah. And he says this, he explains this process that Jesus is talking about here in which we're supposed to apply to how it is that we render judgment upon someone else. He says the measuring of corn, or grain rather, is a process which is carried out according to an established pattern. There was a way in which they were supposed to do this so that they were making sure they were being fair to someone else. So the seller crouches to the ground with a measure between his legs. First of all, he fills the measure three quarters full, gives it a good shake with a rotary motion to make the grain settle down. Then he fills the measure to the top and gives it another shake. Then he presses the corn together strongly with both hands. Finally, he heaps it into a cone, tapping it very carefully to press the grains together. From the time to time, he bores a hole into the corn and pours a few more grains into it until there is literally no more room for a single grain. In this, in this way, the purchaser is guaranteed an absolutely full measure. It cannot hold more. That's the example that Jesus is giving there. The, the measure of kindness that you should be showing to someone else and the judgment that you're giving to them, the forgiveness as well is tied into this passage, giving, but we're very much focused on this aspect of, of judging that is here as well. And this passage is very much, I think, with this particular illustration, forbidding just the nitpicking, just, just the continual critical, judgmental attitude, and that's almost a, just kind of a given. I think that's kind of grown even more in our time period with the um, kind of cable news 24-7, and then maybe the talk radio, and some of these other mediums that are just always going. Something's always there. Something's always there. You've got to fill the air with something. You've got to talk about something. And we can begin to kind of take some of these mentalities in ourselves, where there is, there is nothing but criticism that we can have here. Um, and there's a, a measure of graciousness that needs to be shown. It cannot just be looking at someone based upon the category that you're putting them in. I, I have grown so frustrated at some of these shows. I'm not even able to watch them any longer, where you have these commentators that come on. They will have a guest that comes on to talk. And the person just begins to immediately, well, you're just a liberal. You're just that. He's beginning to just immediately throw pejoratives at the person. The person's not having a chance to talk. He's just, and then, oh, five minutes are up, commercial break. And then we come back in, review what we did, throw a couple more pejoratives, give the person a couple minutes to talk, a couple minutes to talk here, back to another commercial break. This is not being gracious towards other people. There is much opportunity that needs to be given to properly criticizing, properly interacting with someone, properly demonstrating faults in an argument, but this categorization that instantly happens where everyone has to be in this category or that category um, is, not, is not something that I believe is healthy in communicating with, with other people. And here's, here's the reality for you as Christians. If you're someone who has spent any kind of time caring for others, looking after others. If you're someone who is, has a pattern of looking after particular people, parents, you're going to fall into this category of someone who is regularly taking care of other people. Perhaps you're taking care of relatives that you care about. You have some kind of authority over other people. There's going to be people 
in your life that have hurt you or have annoyed you in a regular way. They have maybe burned you many times. They have, they have hurt you in certain ways. And there's, here's what you need to be cautious of. I, here's where I think we can take this illustration and very much apply it to something that most people are going to experience at some point in their life. You cannot take all that has happened to you previously and just project that into every other experience you have with the person because you're going to poison the other interactions that you have because you're going to find out that you project that into the situation and that's not actually what was going on here. You projected so much of what the person had done to you previously into a situation and that's not even where the person is. When you do that, you need to apologize, you need to repent, and you need to recognize that how is it that I want someone to interact with me? What kind of charity do I want someone to interact with me? Do I want someone to take into account every error I've ever made in my life and project that into any interaction they ever have with me? The answer is no. That, that's not being charitable. That's not giving a, a full measure. And the reality is that we need to see this and accept this reality that the Lord is intentionally and purposely going to send people into our lives that are difficult. The Lord is intentionally and purposely going to send people into our lives that cause us pain, that have hurt us in certain ways, and the Lord has a purpose even in doing that. It's even to sanctify you in this area that you can even be working in this area. As it says in verse 38, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Going back to the same principle, that was communicated earlier, do to others what you would have them do to you. That's the heart that we need to have that's flowing out to the interaction with others. So secondly, we see this, we see the way in which we should judge. We talked about the heart that the judgment needs to flow from, but the way in which we should judge, how is it that this should be carried out? Verses 39 through 42. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple <coughs> is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do you not notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see that there is, that there, see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and when, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. We see something that I, I've seen as a pattern in others' lives. I've seen this as a pattern in, in the scriptures. I've seen this as a pattern in the lives of, of men. And this is the idea of seeing your own sin in another person. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? There are men that have had great vitriol towards sins that they're engaged in themselves completely hypocritical. And I, there, there is something there that someone who is walking in a sin in a particular way, they're, they're more cognizant of that in other people at times. 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 7, I think we see this very much with King David. We see his immediate response 
and his judgment upon this person in this parable that Nathan gives. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up, and with him and with his children, he used to eat his morsel and drink from the cup that lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. And he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. David had just engaged in a sin that was far worse than this story that Nathan just told him. David had gone and stolen the wife of another man. David had gone and, and sent the man to the front lines to die. A man who was loyal to the kingdom, loyal to the king, loyal to his troops that were there. And David in his selfishness engaged in the lust in his heart. But you see his judgment here. You see how quick he was, how quick he was to say, that man should die. For one who had committed even a lesser sin that he was engaging in. How is it that you can instruct another in a sin in which you are engaging in the same way? That is hypocrisy. That is, that is to, to live a lie, to live in a way that is inconsistent with what you are professing. It is to undermine the very foundation that you're even standing upon to make a declaration to someone else. Paul gives this warning to Jews who did this in Romans chapter 2. Because you read Romans 1 and the Jews could be saying, yes, that's right, those Gentiles they're pagans. They worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. There's nothing good among them. But Paul turns towards the Jews who had the law, who had the oracles of God, who had the prophets sent to them, who had the ceremonial law there amongst them in all of the festivals, and yet still lived contrary. Beginning in verse 17, he says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law <coughs> and boast in God and know, his, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law and the embodiment of the knowledge and the truth, Israel was called to be a light to the world. <coughs> That's what they were called to do. They were instructed to be this light to the world. And they, they did not live up to what they were commanded to be. Jesus is the one who is the true Israel. Israel and its fallenness pointed to the need of Christ, the greater Israel. But Paul goes on to say this, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say, who is that? 
<coughs> you say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? You boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So the Jews that were living hypocritically under the law, the, the Jews that were making these pronouncements upon others like the Pharisees were doing, making these declarations to others, telling others, you, you, should, you do not have to keep the fifth commandment and honor your parents by caring for them in their old age. You can just give it to the temple. We'll call it Korban. They violated the law of God. And they believed they were more righteous in doing this. Like we, we found a way to really pep this up, to make this even better than it was <coughs> in the Ten Commandments. No, they were to be a light to the world. Those that would teach those that would preach, those that would enforce the law, they, they are held to a higher standard. Let, let, let's be honest with this. How many times do you see an emphasis in the media on all of these roofers that are committing crimes? Or, or, or these car mechanics? There are so many car mechanics that are committing these particular crimes. Or th this grocery store teller. Not so much. Maybe it might be in the report if in some way it's tied into the story. <coughs> but for the most part, you're only going to see the occupations when it's one of three areas and sometimes four, teachers, preachers, and police officers. If someone in one of those three categories is violating the law, is breaking the law, that's going to be at the very top of the story. The, most of the other crimes aren't most of the other professions aren't even going to be mentioned. Now, politics, the truth is, I don't even know that we expect our politicians to be honest anymore. We have someone who is just brought into the House of Representatives, completely lied, just made up his whole resume, made up all kinds of stuff, education, jobs, all of it wasn't true. He's still in there. He's still working. We have someone who is president right now, did the same thing. President before that said many other lies himself, so I'm not trying to, to parse this out and say it's just one side, but it's, it's, it's become ubiquitous in politics. Like, we're not even surprised when someone in politics is corrupt or someone in politics is, is lying. But there is an expectation. So those of you that went through school you had teachers, and the teachers enforced certain rules. They taught things to you. Preachers who are declaring truths of God to other people. And police officers, the ones that are enforcing the law, they're, they're held to a standard that is there. Not that it is more wrong for them, but it is more wrong in the hypocrisy of what they are doing. I think that's what we have that's emphasized here, that one who is teaching, one who is bringing truth to someone else, and they're blatantly violating it. They're openly contradicting it. They're saying one thing over here and then living in a way that is completely contrary to that. There's another level of sin that is here, and that is the hypocrisy that is there. We, we must not be uncharitable. We must not be hypocritical in our instruction and in our declaration. This passage is teaching how proper judgment should happen, how proper instruction should happen. Look at verse 42. 
How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own? So instead of teaching that it's never proper to make a judgment or never proper to correct or to instruct, many times that's what you're doing in correction and instruction, (coughs) is making some kind of a judgment, but rather it's teaching the heart from which it should come forward and the way in which it should be carried out. Jesus says this, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you can see clearly how to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he's not saying don't ever do anything in your life. He's not saying, well, if you're not perfect, you can't ever say anything at all. Have you ever heard someone say that? Well, nobody's perfect. Well, no, nobody's perfect. That's not the emphasis that is here. What he's talking about here is someone living in open hypocrisy. How many times have you heard someone say this? You know, I'm just not going to go to church, okay? You're not going to go to church. Why aren't you going to go to church? Well, there's just, there's hypocrites at the church. Well, that's interesting. I'll tell you this. I find that excuse to be very hypocritical. And I like to instruct people that that is a very hypocritical statement to make. Because I ask the person, okay, you don't go to church because there's hypocrites there. Yes. Okay. Do you go to work? Yeah, I go to work. I'm, you know, whatever my job is. Okay. Do you ever have hypocrites at your work? Oh, the person immediately begins to tell me about something at, at their job. It's funny. Sometimes people will begin to just express these hypocrites that they find in these other places. Well, what about other things? What about your, your kid's school? Oh, man, this teacher said this and did this. I was like, well, you know, it's interesting. You seem to have a different standard for the church here than you do for every other aspect of your life. You seem to be very content going to the grocery store, into the library, into your job, into your kid's school. But you have this, this special level of judgment here for the church that you don't have for any of these others. And I'm not justifying the ways you were wronged, or I'm not justifying the sinful actions of other people, but I'm just trying to show, like, this is not an equal standard. Perhaps there's another reason why you're not wanting to go to church. But that said, I want to say this, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy that someone else is saying, I don't want to go to church because of those hypocrites when that is the way that you're living and that you're, you're existing. I mean, how can you be of any assistance to someone else if you're going to contradict the very things that you are, are saying? No, it must be from a heart that is grounded in the truth. It must be from a heart that, is, that has been, been changed. And only in that can you rightly help someone. Only in that can you rightly give someone else guidance. And, and the fact that you see that those have judged wrongly or you see errors in your own life doesn't mean it's a justification to stay in your sin. Well, I'll just stay silent where I am. I, I just don't need to say anything. No, you need to repent. You need to see the reality of this. You need to see the seriousness of it, and you need to turn from it. And these realities, these existences of sin, these errors that you find in your own life, point to the need of Christ that we have. For none of us are the standard. None of us are standing here upon, I am the standard. It is my righteousness whereby I'm going to be justified or made right before God. I had an incredible conversation with someone this last week. In fact, it was two people. I was, had a, an order that I was taking to the post office, and I, I brought it in there, and, 
There was, I don't know if you noticed this, but around the city, the Jehovah's Witnesses have these little, these little caddies that they're bringing around. And I've, I've kind of driven by them, like seen them at the bus stop, and I'm driving by the bus stop, so I, I don't stop and talk to them. But I saw one there in front of the post office down the street when I was walking in, and I smiled at him, said, how you doing? And I walked back out, looked him in the eye, and they seemed eager to talk to me. I said, I, I can talk to you. I spent a good hour talking to them, had some, uh, had, had some good conversations, tried to uh, do my best not to get into any of their arguments. I don't need to argue with you about hell. I don't need to argue with you about Greek indefinite articles in John 1. I, I don't need to argue about, you know, once saved. I don't need to argue about these different details with you. I want to talk about what's the problem in the world and what is the solution to that problem. And we got all the way through Romans chapter 5 together. And we got to the end of it. The young woman told me, no, there is nothing in the Bible that ever talks about a legal or forensic righteousness. There's nothing in the Bible that ever says there's a righteousness outside of you that is applied to you whereby you're made right before God. I said, where's your righteousness coming from? Oh, that righteousness is coming from my actions. These, these imperfect actions. She came out and said it, yes. It is my actions. I am working and doing righteous actions now, and God is going to judge my actions, and I'm going to be made righteous before him. We walk through Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and we talk through this in many different ways. And that, dear friends, I want you to see... That's the, the picture of all of the world's religions, and I tried to plead with them in that. All of the world's religions, with the exception of Christianity, tell you that through your righteous actions, you can be made right before God. By doing so many good deeds, by doing so many prayers, by giving so much money, by attending so many meetings, by going to church so many times, by being in the right family, or being in the right group, or following certain actions, doing certain things, not doing certain things. That's not Christianity. You see the sin in the world Don't use it to justify yourself. That's what some do in a passage like this that, that, that Christ is dealing with. That the Pharisees were able to look out and see so many people that were so much more evil than they were. They were able to, to make up these other standards and laws because they didn't understand the law itself. They actually thought they were keeping it. There's an idea that not only just to keep it, we need to add these other standards on top of it. And the standards they added on top of the law undermined the very laws themselves, weren't even beneficial in helping you keep them because they weren't dealing with the heart. No, God is looking at the heart. When you see the sin in the world, you see the problems in the world, don't allow yourself to say, well, at least I'm not like those people. Or just find someone in the culture. Find someone who's a teacher or a preacher. Or find someone who's a police officer. And see, and this is supposed to be a standard bearer. And I'm not like that person. As though that in any way is going to benefit you. 
as though that in any way is adding to your righteousness. Your, your comparison to someone else over here that is worse than you, that has sinned in greater ways than you, that has been more hypocritical than you, that, that, that's, that's a reference that is pointing out the need for a Savior. That is pointing out the, the need for things to be made new, for Christ to return and to make all things new. That's what that's a reminder of. But the sinner is not the standard. That evil politician, that evil person in leadership, that is not the standard. And you can't tell yourself, like I was told just this last week, well, look, nobody's perfect. God can't demand perfection because nobody's perfect. No, God can demand perfection because God doesn't change. Perfection has always been the required standard, but God has made a way that you can be righteous, not through your own actions, but through the actions of another, and that is through the work of Jesus Christ, because Jesus kept the law in every respect. He never sinned in any way. Jesus took upon himself the fullness of the wrath of God that we deserve. You can be saved. That's what we must point to. You must remember the standard that is there, and the standard required to have fellowship with God is perfect obedience to the law of God. We were all born dead in our trespasses and sins. We were all born unable to even do what was required. Some get so angry with that. How can God require that of us when we can't keep it? You know, man fell. God didn't fall. God is immutable. God doesn't change Nothing has changed about God, but God's requirement is the same. But God showed his love to us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ came. Christ died. That is the means through which you can have fellowship with God. You can have redemption. You can have true life. Don't allow yourself to justify yourself because of the sins of other people. Don't allow yourself to be someone that says, because this person is so bad, I know that I'm okay. That's not the standard. That's not the standard. The Lord is going to come back. He's going to straighten everything out. He's going to make all things new. But the requirement is perfection, and that comes by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. And there is one religion in the world, there's one religion in the world that teaches that that teaches grace and through faith, true grace and true faith. Not grace that is you doing some works to fill in whatever God hasn't done yet or is going to do. No, no, true grace, imputed righteousness from Jesus, granted to people. Someone say, well, it doesn't matter how you live. Of course it matters how you live. For Paul says in Ephesians 2 and verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus Four good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So good works follow regeneration. Good works follow true faith. Good works follow those that have been changed and are made alive in Christ Jesus. But those works are the evidences and the fruits of that faith and not the, and not the basis of it. They are the evidences of that righteousness and peace you have with God. They aren't the basis. They aren't the standard whereby you gain peace with God. For if that was the case, 
we would be without hope. If that was the case, none of us would stand before the Lord, but praise be to God that Christ has come, that our greater federal head has come forward, our second Adam has come forward. He has kept the law in every way. He has taken upon himself the consequences of our sin. He has taken upon himself the wrath of God that whoever believes upon him, whoever trusts upon him, can be saved. And I pray that you are trusting upon him. I pray that you are standing on his righteousness and not justifying yourself in comparison to someone else.